This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome back to Snowcast. I'm Jon Snow and this week's guest is the comedian Phil Wang. Phil was born in Stoke-on-Trent and spent his childhood in Malaysian Borneo before moving to Bath at the age of 16. Phil went on to Cambridge University where he successfully combined engineering with comedy. He won the Chortle Student Comedy Award in his second year, a Comedy Central Award the following year, and became president of Footlights. By this point, Phil knew that he was going to pursue a comedy career, and he's enjoyed great success ever since, with both solo shows and his sketch trio, Daphne. Phil often talks about race in his comedy, It's a subject he finds interesting, and which he explained further in his funny and thoughtful book, Sidesplitter, How to Be from Two Worlds at Once. It was a pleasure to sit down and learn more about this talented young comedian. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Phil Wang, you wanted to be a singer initially. Can you sing? I could then. I think I've retained some of that ability now, but I've lost a bit of my range. And what music did you listen to growing up? I had tastes that were the tastes of an old man. Beethoven? (laughs) Maybe not that old. (laughs) It was all like uh, the Rat Pack and the Jazz Era and Swing. My first exposure to popular music of any kind was the Beatles, who my father was obsessed with and who would play on this guitar and sing the Beatles, and I would apparently grab his leg and dance along with him to mm. I Want to Hold Your Hand. A bit awkward for an 18-year-old boy, but uh, that was a toddler. But then I picked up this habit of listening to old music, and for a long time I wouldn't even listen to any music unless the people involved were dead. Goodness. <laughs> so what sort of people were they? <laughs> oh, Frank Sinatra, Louis Armstrong, Bobby Darin, all those like classic crooner types, and I became obsessed with the crooner age and the swing age in my teens. I suddenly realised I'm very old because they were all alive when I was young. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I only just missed them. I uh-huh. think like Dean Martin died just as I was born. And I was convinced I was going to be the sort of the next incarnation of the swing age, of the jazz mm. age. And I wanted to be a professional sort of crooner in that sort of Michael Bublé style. Well, I mean, what would I find you listening to in the car? I'm currently listening to a lot of hip hop, to be honest. Mm-hmm. But one uh, genre... No Brahms. 
<laughs> no, not currently. Although a genre I do really like is sort of world music, you know, music yeah. from the Far East or Southern Africa, yeah. but mixed in a Western way. And sometimes I think maybe that's a reflection of of the two sides of me, in the Western and the and the non-Western. Uh, as a child, I was really musical. I, I was a chorister at Winchester Cathedral oh, nice. and music every single day, you know, wandering around in a surplice. And the... So you were like one of the countertenor behind? No, 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 I was a treble. I mean, I, my voice hadn't broken. Yeah, right. I was course. stolen from my parents when I was eight uh, and oh, offered a lot of money to, to stay at this choir school. If I'd lived in the UK at that age, I, I probably would have tried to do that too. I think you might have done. Yeah. Because it gave you a free private education for a start. Yes. Well, I, I went so I went to King's College in Cambridge, and they have a very famous choir there. Did you sing? I tried to apply for the choral scholarship at King's, but because I was studying engineering, I wasn't allowed to because our degree was too intense. And being a King's chorister was basically a full-time job. And so unless you had a subject where you could just sort of cram mm. an essay in a night and be done you couldn't really join. And so I instead auditioned for sort of the, the B team choir, the B mm. choir, and I got into that and did the occasional even song and things like this. Because actually music would have greatly humanized engineering. <laughs> <laughs> this is it, yeah. It seems a real shame. You know, we seem condemned to be a set aside from the artistic types. What is your musical ambition? Oh, gosh, I don't know if I... I, I would at but some point... But you do point, have one. I would at some point like to make a musical show, a co- mm. musical live comedy show in which I am singing as properly as I can um, but being as funny as I can. You know, the comedian Stuart Lee said that the final frontier in comedy is to do something earnestly and well. Mm. And and I, it feels like a real challenge. If I can sing as well as I can whilst I'm doing a funny show, I think that would be really fascinating. But I've not figured it out yet. But it's achievable. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Other people have done it. I just wonder if I can do it in my own way. What made comedy your number one passion? Well, there are no scales to do, for one. (laughs) I always found the theory of music difficult, and um, it turned out I wasn't all that good, really, technically, at music. Whereas comedy, it is sort of endlessly mysterious comedy in that there is no formalized study of it, Mm. really. And it's very hard to come up with a formalized study of it. And it was just something that you had to have a knack for and an obsession with and something that you were willing to practice again and again in the performance, you know. Music, you have to practice at home on your own, but comedy can only be practiced on stage in that thrilling environment with that adrenaline coursing through your veins. That's what's attractive about comedy. Even the practice is exhilarating, and I think that's what drew me to it. Was there a particular comedian who you loved or a moment that made you realize you wanted to make people laugh for a living? It was quite a cumulative thing. When the first thing I ever wanted to be as a child was a clown, like an like an actual clown with a red nose and, and bound about and be silly and things. And then but, I then, but lovely that you had that thought right as early as that. Yeah, yeah, I really did. And then I sort of found science and maths, and I became interested in that. And I thought, okay, this is what my life will actually be. And it wasn't really until I was about sixteen that I rediscovered my fascination with comedy when YouTube became a thing and I started seeing clips of people doing stand-up and I thought, wow, this is pretty incredible to just get on stage and, and be funny. But I'd always been fascinated with it as a child. I, you know, I watched 
we, we grew up in Malaysia, but we got some satellite TV and we got some British sitcoms. So we got Blackadder and French and Saunders was a real amazing show for me. I love French and Saunders and and The Simpsons. I watched every night. There are many universal truths, but one is that no matter where you are in the world, The Simpsons is on at 6 p.m. And I grew up with that as well. Do you have vivid memories of growing up? In Malaysia? Yeah. Yeah, well, I was there until I was 16. Yeah, entirely educated there till 16. Yeah, well, 14 to 16, I did GCSEs in nearby Brunei, which is right next door. Yeah. It was at an international school there. And, but then but was, that speaks of a very bright boy. Uh, maybe. maybe. I, I, I liked school. I was good at school. Mm. Not PE, but I was good at the exams and, and things mm. like that. And always wanted to do very well at school. And both my parents are very smart professionals. So, you know, education was very much valued. Were you an only child? No, I've got I have two younger sisters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they were no threat. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're both very clever. They're both very clever. One's a lawyer, the other is um, a librarian. Both, it turns out, are highly competitive fields. And what did your dad do? My dad was an engineer, mm-hmm. a civil engineer. Building bridges and things. Um, he was water. He was in the water ah, department. Yeah. And so he, he loves septic tanks. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever met someone with such a passion for septic <laughs> tanks. And then, Th- thank God there are such people. <laughs> yes, we really do need them. And then he worked for the train system, the railway system, he said of the railway in our home state. What led to the departure to England? Uh, well, mum is British. I, I was actually born in Stoke on Trent, where my mum is from. And then, you know, three weeks after I was born, we moved back to Malaysia. So I don't mm. really remember the, the Stoke weeks. And we always felt this connection to the UK. And we spoke English really as a first language. And we'd always aspire to sort of British level of education. And Malaysian education is pretty good, but Mm. I don't know, it just felt like an organic move. Mm. And so the whole family moved when you were 16? Yeah, my my mother and sisters moved a bit before me because I was a bit older and I still had my GCSEs to finish in Brunei. Mm. But then I caught up with them after that, yeah. Was Brunei very British? Brunei is very boring. It's a very, (laughs) really boring... You can be British and very boring. (laughs) That's true. It's more that it doesn't really have any clear cultural influence. It's it's a very barren place. It's very quiet. It's, you know, it's a very rich, very small principality, an oil-rich principality. And the international people there are there for the army and therefore Shell. So most of my friends were the children of Shell engineers or soldiers. I would imagine that your book, Side Splitter, made several readers want to visit Malaysia and Borneo. If a friend was planning a trip to your hometown of Kota Kinabalu, what would be your top recommendations? Well, the food is always the top on the list of recommendations for anyone going to Malaysia. Uh, Kota Kinabalu is famous for its mountain, Mount Kinabalu, which is named after. It's a classic thing to climb that. It's quite a cool experience. Literally, I mean, it, gets, it does get very, very cold. I couldn't believe how cold it was at the top. Um, there are beaches, there are islands and resorts and that sort of thing. And then you can go in, inland to the mangroves and the rainforest and see all kinds of strange animals and strange plants, pitcher plants. And it's, I mean, Borneo has one of the oldest ecosystems in the world, mm. I think. And yeah, I think if you're into nature, it's pretty fascinating stuff. I wasn't as a kid, so it's kind of wasted on me. In Malaysia, food is the national pride and pastime. Do you cook much of it yourself? Make favorite Malaysian dishes? Or are you more into the experience of eating that? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm more of an experienced eater of Malaysian food than a cooker. Um, I, I do cook, but Malaysian food, uh, 
it, it requires a lot of ingredients. You know, all the classic dishes require a lot of spices and things that can be hard to find and hard to hard to mash up. And and I'm I'm being I'm being lazy really more than anything. But in a sense, that chimes with your description of East Malaysia as a racial and cultural melting pot. Can you elaborate on that? Because you're you're talking about a very elaborate food system in which there are lots mm. of very interesting tastes and colours, and yet at the same time, you're also saying that actually Malaysian society was a bit like that too. Yeah, well, so the the main racial groups, ethnic groups, cultural groups in Malaysia are the Chinese, the Indians, and the Malays. Mm. And they've always mixed together pretty well. There's a, a big festival going on in Malaysia all the time. So there are decorations up all the time. So Christmas decorations will be up. And then the second they go down, the Chinese New Year's decorations go up. And then the second they go down, the Hari Raya, which is Eid, those decorations go up. And then they come down. And then Dipavli comes up. And everyone's expected to take part in each other's festivals. And they, people put on open houses where people just come over and have food. So in Chinese New Year, Chinese people open their houses. In Hari Raya, Malay people open their houses. And so the food has reflected that as well. So in a dish like laksa, which has started to become quite popular here, that's a classic representation of Malaysian cuisine because it's Chinese noodles, but in a sort of Indian curry broth and then topped with Malay sambal, which is fermented shrimp and chili. But the more you talk about it, the more I think what an amazing sort of transition it must have been, not only to go to Stoke-on-Trent or anywhere else, but to go to university in Cambridge. Well, when I first moved to Bath, I mean, we moved over to the UK, and that you know, Bath is a very, very white town. Mm. And I'd just come from an international school where the people from all over the world and suddenly are somewhere that's much more homogeneous racially. Cambridge was diverse in comparison mm. to Bath. But the food was a bit of a shock. You could find the occasional bit of uh, Chinese food, but Malaysian food was always hard to come by. It's amazing how far food has come in the UK in the last 10 years or something. See, I wasn't really thinking just of food. I was thinking, oh, I always No, I was, thinking, <laughs> I was thinking of the social setup. Oh, yeah. I mean, where do you fit in the class system? After all, uh, uh, Cambridge yes. was actually riddled with it. Yes, of course. Well, yeah, because, I mean, in, in Malaysia, well, outside of the UK, you don't really have this strong sense of class. Yeah, the people with money and the people with less money, and that's kind of it. Uh, well, that chimes a bit with Cambridge, doesn't it? I suppose, but even then, you have posh people and middle class people. There's definitely some people who are from the upper class in Cambridge. Although I went to King's College, which is famous for its large intake, relatively large intake. And top of the pops. Top of the pops? The carols. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The I mean, they're probably the most listened to classical performance in any year, yes, of course, yeah. I've still, I've still. Did not, you sing? Not at uh, Carols and Kings. That's the A choir. Uh huh. Yeah, we we were the runty B choir, which didn't take part in the big shows. Well, but a good outbreak of mumps, and you could have been in the main one. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, a strategic mump outbreak, and I would have had my big break. But it's such a contrast. But again, steeped got... in tradition of five hundred years old. I mean, yeah, you're right. That's the main shock when you move over from somewhere like Malaysia to the UK is how old everything is. Mm. I mean, Malaysia as a country is younger than my father, mm. you know, and and then I'm going to university that predates the United States of America. You know, there was a round when the Mayans were around and you kind of lose all sense of temporal scale, you know. That's what's amazing about the UK when you tap on the walls and it, they're so solid and they've been there for so long. Uh, so they felt like we're going from the new world to the old world, for sure. And did your intellect basically 
drive you through? Well, to be honest, I was always so used to change and I was always so used to sticking out and not feeling completely at home because I was mixed race in Malaysia and even there I didn't feel totally at home. So I was always quite well practiced in feeling a little alien and a little out of place. And uh, more than anything, I was excited by the new environment and the the grandeur of the place. Hmm. Yeah, no, it excited me more than anything, especially in that age when you just so thrilled by new experiences. Your book is a very considered response to the question, where are you from? The question has loomed large in your life, but you were first asked the question in East Malaysia. Yeah, yeah, growing up in Sabah. I spoke English predominantly and that, and I looked white. I mean, in Malaysia, I look white. Here, I look Asian. I think it depends who you're standing out against, how you look and are standing out against Malaysian people. I look white there. So, yeah, I'd be growing up in Malaysia and People talk to me and then they get to a point and go, so where are you, where are you from? Are you from the UK? And I go, no, no, I live down the road. <laughs> <laughs> the question followed you to the UK, but as a rule, you'd say that we are much less open here when it comes to talking about race. Yeah. I don't think that's true, isn't it? I think so. There's much more of a discomfort when race comes up in the UK, especially as opposed to Malaysia, where sort of race and racial difference is part of everyday discourse because as I say you know Mm. different signs for different festivals are going up all the time it's Mm. very clear that the country's made up of a lot of different cultures and the country was founded as a compromise between all these different ethnic Mm. and cultural groups and so people talk about who's Chinese who's Malay who's Indian every day you like to view yourself as both British and Malaysian it's a, a better choice of word than half do you now embrace your duality as an asset, particularly in a country that has become geopolitically more insular in recent years? Yes, it is absolutely an asset. I mean, when I started comedy, I was very aware that it was an asset because as soon as I got on stage, I was notable. I was the only person who was East Asian and Mm. um, the only person with a a Chinese surname, you know, and not the only person on the bill with my cultural experience and so I was able to talk about things in a way no one else could and from perspective no one else really had the corollary of that is I never had a great tie or, or to to local references mm-hmm. I mean it took me years to understand what Mr. Blobby was <laughs> and I still don't completely understand it and and all and Do you, you know, know who Noddy was <laughs> I think we got Noddy. He was a, a puppet. Well, or he, he drove a little car. Well, he was. Well, he, well, that's true. But he was basically the star in a children's little newspaper. Um, <laughs> yeah, and that was before the technology had anything more than a bit of paper on which to have a story. This is a British childhood culture is impenetrable. Ah. It is. It's so odd. Mm. <laughs> There's, uh, you know, I mean, Bagpuss is trippy. I what mean, about it's... Winnie the Pooh. Yeah, we got Winnie the Pooh, but mainly because of the American yeah. repackaging. You know. Mm-hmm. When you're critiqued for talking about race and cultural differences in your set, does that anger or upset you? It used to. I, I remember my first couple of solo shows, I'd get reviews that said um, he talks about race too much. He doesn't need to lean on it. It's, it's spoken about as like a crutch. And I took issue with that. I even publicly on Twitter took issue with a review for once again saying he talks about race too much. And I really didn't like that it was considered... Can any of us talk too much about race? Well, this is the thing. I don't think so. And in a, in a comedy show, a stand-up show, it's understood that people talk about their experience. Um, I thought it was strange that, we were, that non-white comics were picked on for it when, say, if a British act went on and spoke about the minutiae of being British, I think that would have been celebrated. Mm. 
You've uh, spoken of the invisibility faced by East Asian Brits and racism that is often centred on ridicule, but became more hostile with COVID. How did that happen? <laughs> Over COVID? In, yeah. I don't know if you've heard, but it started off in China. Yes, but did that really reach the streets here? It, yeah, yeah, it did, actually. My, well, my sister got some verbal abuse just before the lockdown started. Whereabouts? In the street in London. Mm. Um, she's walking around and a guy tried to get her attention. And when she ignored him... That's horrible. Yeah, he made a COVID ref- a coronavirus. Well, back then, coronavirus, as it was known back then. And... And I was walking home one day and a guy spotted me and sort of just said, oh, Corona, and sort of walked ahead of me and tried to get away from me. But then lockdown happened. And so it, it never really came to the head we were worrying about, I think, mm. because we weren't able to interact with each other anyway. But in the lead up to lockdown, yeah, there, it was definitely, definitely more than it had been before. I don't think a lot of people knew anything about what COVID did to race relations. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it was worse in the United States where there's a larger East Asian diaspora. Mm. Um, in the UK, there are fewer of us. But yeah, there's some pretty bad stories all around the UK. But it seems to be okay now. But there was a time when Chinatown was completely uh, abandoned even before lockdown happened, you know. But the counterbalance is that you, you are part of a growing demographic and people should be interested because the mixed race, multicultural experience is one that's only going to become more and more relevant with time. Yeah. In other words, common. you're at the cutting edge. Yes. Well, I mean, and these relationships are becoming more and more common and mixed children are becoming mm. less and less of a strange thing. And so I think it's becoming a more and more relatable experience. And so I felt, you know, I was chuffed to be able to write a book about it. Were you surprised at criticism of your decision to call your 2014 show Mellow Yellow? <laughs> yes. I like it. I like it very much, also because it I, that my vibe is, and it certainly wasn't very mellow, and mellow yellow just seemed like a perfect title. I, I remember. I mean, it was an ironic title, which yeah. is brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. Irony is one of the best elements of comedy. <laughs> no, I'm still proud of that title, mellow yellow. When I told other comics, their responses always they they range from laughing to going, "Oh dear, Phil." So, <laughs> I think some people saw the joke and some didn't. Do you think that the cancel culture? has led to increased self-censorship in comedy. And a small correction might be due, or do you think it's a safe space so long as you exercise care and judgment? <laughs> well, I suppose in a way those are two um, contradictory statements. You know, I, Because we live in a time where socially you have to exercise more care and judgment with the things you say, that is effectively what complainants of cancel culture are talking about. And cancel culture is very real i think it's crazy when people try and say that it's made up it's clearly real uh, but i think i think it's dying down now i think people are starting to get enough of it and as politics has become more serious again comedy's been able to get funnier again so i, I think a large part of what made cancel culture so powerful within comedy was that politics became ridiculous so trump brexit and that's when cancel culture really took off, mm. when because politicians were failing people, comedians were somehow then given the responsibility of being politicians. Mm. And then we, we had to talk like we were politicians and we were given the same scrutiny over our words as politicians were because the politicians no longer had to abide by those standards. And as topical comedy shows became more and more 
about the moral side of things and more performatively ethical mm. and moralistic. Mm. Comedians started to be treated like politicians because politicians had become comedians. Mm. But you just mentioned just then Brexit. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you think, both as a human and as a comedian, do you think Brexit did a great deal of damage to Britain's culture? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it continues to do damage. And until, until it's fixed or stopped or ended or, you know, it will continue to damage us. It's hard to see it ever happening. Just be left as a shambles. Yeah, I mean, what will happen is I will gradually, gradually get back to where we were and end up in a slightly worse position than where we were, and it'll take three decades. It's just Three old. decades? How yeah. we did? <laughs> <laughs> it's just a terrible waste of time. But above all, it was politically unserious, and it marked a point in the Western world's history when politics were very unserious, and comedy suffered for it. You're listening to Snowcast with me, Jon Snow, and we'll be right back after this. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Your own book included some Malaysian history and touched upon the subject of empire. Was the book a better medium than stand-up for the nuance that this subject requires? <laughs> well. A book definitely allows for more nuance, yeah. And you get a little more time, a little more space to explore ideas. When you do stand-up, you know, there's the requirement to have a joke every few seconds, which makes it hard to make an earnest point and makes it hard to make a nuanced political point, which is why mm. I think a lot of political comedy is actually very unnuanced and not particularly interesting because you have to get to a joke, which undermines your position all mm. the time, right? Mm. Whereas in a book, you have a little more space to explore ideas and... And in the radio as well. So I did a Radio 4 show called Wang Splaining, which was about hmm. the empire as well. Brilliant. Oh, thanks. I'm glad yeah, you loved it. it. It turned out I was ahead of my time then because the empire then became a very prescient topic in the mm. UK. Your, your book was funny, but also very thoughtful. Has this played a part in your next show being more silly, more playful? Oh, yes. I mean, my current touring show, hmm. Wang in Their Baby, as you might be able to tell Wang in the title. Their Baby. What a, what a title. <laughs> You're so lucky. How many people have got a name that wangs away like that? <laughs> yeah, I am fortunate with that. I, I was resistant to the pun titles for a long time, and now I've, I've just just dived in. Uh, but yeah, yeah I'm, this is definitely, I think, my silliest show. I'm allowing myself to be sillier and be goofier and just to go for the joke and just trying to make the jokes as funny and as possible. I, I watch over some of my old stand-up, and I just found I could be a bit verbose sometimes, a bit serious, and that I'd, I'd thought too much about 
the words and about making non-comedic points between the jokes. And this now I'm just trying to refine, just trying to get it as efficient a comedy machine as I can. The show is getting you your biggest tour to date. What is it like to be headlining thousand-seater venues? I mean, that's a big audience. I know the telly's bigger, but I mean, it's a big present audience. Well, you say television's bigger, but the way I think about it is a live show is actually bigger than TV because when you record a TV show, you think about it. I mean, in the studio recording in front of a couple hundred people, but aside from that, your max audience is maybe five because mm. people are watching it, right? And it, more often than not, your audience is one because most TV is watched privately now on a laptop, whatever. So when you do a TV show, really you're playing to one person. When you're doing a live show in a big theater, you're playing to a thousand whatever people. I have to not let myself remember that when I'm on stage because it starts to feel completely mad what I'm doing. To be up there on my own, trying to make a thousand people laugh is an insane thing to, to want to do. So I just have to put that out of my mind while I'm up there and just try and think of the audience as a, sort of a, a mass. But nevertheless, you've cracked it. And do you have any more ambitions? This is such an amazing breakthrough in a sense if one looks your tra trajectory through Cambridge and the rest mm. of it. Mm. I don't think you ever crack it. And I think that's why I'm so fascinated by comedies. It's kind of like alchemy. You always try and think you've figured out how to turn metal into gold, but you try again the next day and you, you've not quite got it. And you can never be entirely sure that a joke's going to work. So there's always this experimentation. There's always this mystery. There's no formalized theory about it. So you're always just trying to figure out and guess and... And it's endlessly interesting. It's the only thing that I've never really got bored of is, is comedy. So I don't think I'll ever crack it. I don't think anyone ever really cracks it. But do you have any, still have any specific, unrealized ambitions for stand-up? Yeah, I want to make uh, another stand-up special with this show and learning all the things I learned from making the last one. Because mm -hmm. uh, it's a completely different beast making it sound special to performing a live show. There's so many other, other things to think about. And I think I learned a lot from the last one that can apply to this one. When you think about the pressure on people in live performance, you think of the Edinburgh Festival. There is a debate every year about the pressures and expenses of taking a show to Edinburgh. Is the Fringe... Still an essential stop on the stand-up career path? Or do you now see comedians coming through roots had nothing to do with Edinburgh or any of those boss jobs? Yeah, Edinburgh is no longer necessary. Um, and Maybe Cambridge's. <laughs> Cambridge, no, Cambridge helps. I mean, Cambridge helps as much as it hinders, to be honest, I think. But Edinburgh, the fringe is not what it used to be. It doesn't. It's not a requirement anymore, mainly due to... Uh, the internet and social media and people making their name online on social media platforms. You don't need the Edinburgh Fringe to show everyone what you can do. And the pandemic showed that because people came through when there wasn't an Edinburgh Fringe and also the Edinburgh Fringe now for numerous reasons is um, economically unviable for most people. So until it fixes its problems, I, it's going to keep... Are they fixable? Well, I think, I don't know the details, but the Edinburgh Council can do things about the stock of accommodation in the city during mm, the month of August mm. and making that more available and more affordable. The people have talked about rent caps. Well, it's poshed I, itself out of business. Yeah. Basically, they need to find a balance between the protection of residents and the viability of the Edinburgh Fringe, which is an important part of the Edinburgh's yearly economy. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's untenable as it is, for sure. And it'll continue to become a less relevant festival for comedy unless it's sorted out. It's clear you write very well. Do you want to do more? Is there another book or perhaps scripting a 
comedy drama? Yeah, yeah, I'm working on a script. Another book would be for good. For a show? Yeah, for a scripted show about... Great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, one that would center on the subjects of uh, racial difference and living in the UK and all this sort of thing. Yeah, those, that's always on the go. And, and there's a great market. I, I think so, yeah. But I mean, it ranges from people who are affected one way or another absolutely. Uh, to, to, to people who, who aren't affected but really do want to know. Yeah, and I think that's the challenge with something like this, with talking about your own personal story, is making it relatable to the people it applies to, but also interesting to the people who who have not led that life, that kind of life. Do you see an improvement in representation on screen and on stage? I mean, absolutely. I mean, especially in the last few years, I think it, it's a world of difference. Yeah, mm. I think it's gone um, better and better. And can't go backwards. Well, I think... We are a multicultural society, yes. Yeah, we are, are. but I suppose the idea, this has always been my question about representation. Is the representation we're going for proportional representation or corrective representation? If it's proportional representation, then we end up with, you know, TV that's 85% white, which is the makeup of the UK, right? If it's corrective representation, then we over-represent to make up for a history of Mm under-representing. And... And sure, fine, if that's the case, but then that has a time limit too. So that's not going to be forever. So presumably we get back at some point to proportional representation. Both of those options have the feel of somebody having to manipulate it. Yeah, well, I I mean, there always has to be active manipulation to change change things. And that's what people have called for, I suppose, with the drive for greater representation recently. And um, I've been glad to see it, especially in terms of, you know, see more East Asians on stage and on screen. You know, um, you've reached the point, you know this well, in which you've lived here longer than anywhere else. Yeah, I think I'm now a year longer here than Malay. I, I, had, my half and, <laughs> I had my half and half anniversary last year, 16 years I, I'm just wondering, on a flight to London, do you ever feel like you're going home? Or do you just think always you have a deep-rooted sense of duality? <laughs> uh, your flair for drama is unmatched, John, I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, so I last went to Malaysia this last Christmas and New Year, and I hadn't been since the pandemic, which is the longest time I hadn't been to Malaysia. And I had expected for it to feel alien, but when I when I landed there, it all came rushing back to me, and I realized, no, this is I this will always did, be a part of me. Not least because so many must have been so excited to see you again. Um, yeah, family, their, friends, everybody. Yeah, well, in their own odd way, <laughs> my Malaysian side has a fun, you know where. We have a very casual way of showing affection to each other. So an uncle will come over and sort of, <laughs> you okay? <laughs> and pat me on the shoulder. Mm-hmm. And I've been five years since we last saw each other and that's our great reunion. And can you remember who he is? <laughs> yeah, there, I do have a lot of uncles. But I have a chart in my pocket that I bring around with me mm-hmm. to remember who's who. No, it's, it's always it's good to catch up with them after the pandemic and to see that they're still all still okay. But flying back from Malaysia to London... It didn't feel like flying from a foreign place to, back to home. It just kind of, in a weird way, way, it felt like flying from home to home, but the flight took 20 hours. Hmm. But do you think it gives you a perspective on life that actually is rather liberating? I think so. I think my, my world is large um, mm. because of being from two different sides of the, the world. The downside of, of that is I don't really have a strong sense of locality anywhere. I, I don't have a football team. I don't have a, a community. I don't have a pub where I can go in and people go, Phil, and I've known them since I was a kid. Or 
I don't but don't you think to... all those forces are grossly inflated? Not everybody goes exactly. to watch football. No, no, yeah, that's right. But I mean, for example, I don't have childhood friends. You know, I don't. That's that's a very interesting. Yeah, y- yeah. In the UK, I, there's you know, I don't have any childhood friends I can meet or, or or catch up with or you know, I sometimes I see people friends on Instagram. It's a wedding or a or a Hindu or something or a stag do. And I've 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 known this person since we were kids, and and I go, oh, I guess I'll never ever have that because of my. I mean, the way you, my life has been. You've got people but, that you presumably still know from Cambridge. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, especially in the comedy scene, mm-hmm. people I did comedy with there, Piano Valley, who I do my podcast with, and Jason Forbes and George Foraker, who I did Daphne, a sketch group with. And so I, I've made I made some very great and important friendships at, uh, at Cambridge. But I, I don't have that, that childhood connection to this country that other people do. The Britain you came to is changing. Yeah. And not least by Brexit and various other forces. And I'm wondering how you feel about the long term. I think we've been through a particularly dark few years, the UK, but I it feels like it's going to get better. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels like the attitude around Brexit is changing. It's starting to feel that like that really was, it really may have been a sort of political flash in the pan that we were unlucky enough to have a vote over at that time. I mean, maybe I'm speaking as um, an over-optimistic Ramona, but... Hard <laughs> real. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think the younger generations in this country are very thoughtful and talented and intelligent, and I, I think things tend to get better. So, no, I'm I'm very proud Brit. I'm, I'm a, a real patriot, which is very unfashionable for someone my age and my in my line of work, but I think it's a new modern kind of patriotism and I think this country will get better. And and a final thought, what would you like to achieve that you haven't achieved yet? You've achieved a hell of a amount. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it never feels that way. I'm, I'm not very good at allowing myself to enjoy. But we've been enjoying the things that you've been doing. Oh, well, that's very good. Yeah, that's that's wonderful to hear. Um, I mean, And I've enjoyed this interview as a consequence. Oh, likewise. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm not really sure what I want to do. I'm I'm doing a bit of acting. I'm doing a bit of uh, writing, as I say, writing scripts and stuff. But it, do you think you're here to stay, for example? Oh, in the UK? Yeah. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. Oh, good. Oh, without a Thank doubt. Thank goodness. Oh no, don't worry about <laughs> me, John. Yeah, yeah. You you you're stuck with me for a while. Oh, good. For sure. Yeah. Well, it's delightful to be stuck with you, and particularly in a studio doing an interview with you. So, thank you very very much indeed. Thanks, John. Thanks so much. That was the comedian Phil Wang, and you can find details of his new show, Wang in There Baby, in the episode description, along with links to recordings of previous shows and his insightful book, Side Splitter. I'm John Snow, and I'd like to say thank you for listening to Snowcast. I'll be sharing another episode next Tuesday, so please follow the podcast on your platform of choice, and I hope to meet you back here very soon. Goodbye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.